From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hate crime prevention happens on multiple fronts, thwarting immediate attacks, for instance, and educating young people early on about bias and its dangers. But what can you do in your daily life to help? Then, more evidence that false claims of election fraud in Mesa County are just that, false. And an update on the rosebush discovered at Camp Amachi. These witness roses are saying, Welcome home, pilgrims. Later, a dreamer returns to her native country where she hadn't been since she was four. As a child, I didn't understand why I couldn't go to Mexico. But now somehow, at age 19, I was returning and my heart was just about to burst. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What role might each of us play in preventing crimes based on bias, like the supermarket attack in Buffalo this month, or the eerily similar one in 2019 at an El Paso Walmart? White supremacist propaganda and incidents have been on the rise in Colorado. But this state is also a hotbed for research into hate groups and prevention. Psychologist Rachel Nielsen joins us. She used to lead the Colorado Resilience Collaborative at the University of Denver. Now she works on violence prevention and crisis intervention with a firm called Nicoletti Flater Associates in Lakewood. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So there's the question of how hateful ideologies take root even before someone considers violence. What is the first line of prevention? Usually we notice that our loved ones are changing in some way. Um, Actually, what we found in bystander research is that friends and family have the greatest influence and the greatest opportunity to catch it early, well before it would come onto the radar of a professional, like a mental health professional or an educator. So um, we would just encourage that when somebody starts for the first time saying things about violence or hate or um, suggesting that that's the answer to social or political issues now, that uh, we confront that simply by having a conversation and not shying away from it. And we confront that where? On Facebook, at a family gathering? Where does that conversation take place? And what does it sound like? Because it's, it's awfully hard to change minds. It certainly is. You mentioned Facebook, and I think social media can actually be um, one of the worst places to have a conversation about ideologies, um, things like racism, because it easily becomes divisive, Mm. especially when you're not face-to-face. Really, the people that we care about their opinions most are those in our daily lives. So I would think that a face-to-face conversation would go best where there can be some dialogue. What would it sound like? Game it out for me. 
So I think if uh, if I were to have someone say something that I had never heard from them before, something racist, we'll go with that, um, that as uncomfortable as that would be, knowing how this goes, I would want to say, you know, I've never heard you talk like that. Um, why are these things appealing to you? Um, what's changed with you, and actually express concern about them, that mm. something is off, um, and they're becoming angry and blaming people, which is really a, a warning sign. What you also did there is you asked questions. You didn't come out sort of swinging with accusations, and it feels right. like that's important. It definitely is, because if you just come with the opposite opinion or try to fact someone out of their beliefs by citing something else that you've seen on the internet or that you've heard, sometimes it ends up having the effect of either making you impossible to talk to, they think you're the other, mm. um, or shaming them, and they pull away and then maybe don't express these things to you, but they can continue spinning up away from you. Uh, Rachel, you mentioned bystander research. Yes. So I gather what that means is that after incidents occur, there have been conversations with those around perpetrators to glean as much as as you can about warning signs, et cetera. Is that a, a ripe area for research? It is. And um, there's some federal research that found that in any of these given attacks, there are three people, usually friends and family, uh, who had real information about what their loved one was going to do, but they probably didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And some of the reasons, um, the top reasons that people don't report is they're afraid to get their loved one in trouble, so they don't want to overreact. They don't want the loved one to get mad at them. This is especially true with teens and young people that they don't want to get their friend in trouble or they don't want to get in trouble with them for something that maybe they've done. Okay. Um, up to seven people in a person's life actually knew what they were going to do um, prior to a mass casualty attack. But we really don't have a great system in the U.S. of finding where to bring that um, situation. That That is... If folks are afraid to go to law enforcement because they think that's too much of an escalation too quickly, there's no real middle ground, safe place for them to turn. Is True. that what I hear you saying? True. There are some organizations across the U.S. Um, that have developed really out of, you know, passion projects. Maybe someone who's directly affected then creates a nonprofit, but there's not a federal system. Luckily, here we have Safe to Tell. Yeah, that's the kind of hotline if you suspect something. Yes. And so that works well for these kinds of concerns uh, about a kid who may have a gun on campus or has insinuated that they will hurt somebody. But the problem is very much like, you know, what happened in Buffalo and even at the King Supers is once these kids graduate from high school, they don't necessarily fall on anyone's radar. So there's a gap, you're saying? Absolutely. And you're invoking the King Supers shooting in Boulder there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Also a young person. Um, You've yeah. mentioned on several occasions young people. And so I wonder to what extent the notion of preventing bias crimes begins in a classroom. 
I do think that the educational culture and the values of a school have a lot to do with mitigating these things early because freedom of speech goes so far in the U.S. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of hate speech also falls under that. So it comes down to our communities, our schools, our you know, faith organizations to draw the line about what we find culturally, socially acceptable way before it's something criminal. But hasn't that sort of education become political in and of itself? In some ways, yes, in recent years. What sort of education is going on that you've seen in Colorado to this effect? Well, I think it comes down to, you know, mission statements and value statements of schools. So, you know, is it written in school policy that it's unacceptable and there are consequences for saying something racist to a peer? And someone knows how to have the conversation to follow up on it. Yes. Um, And that that value actually bears out. So you could have a policy that no one acts on. So it really does come down to everyone taking up the charge and and pushing for a positive, um, diverse, inclusive environment at schools. So that's the school environment, but let's talk about the broader environment. The so-called replacement theory, this racist idea that immigrants and other non-white people are coming to steal all that's rightly yours, it motivated the Buffalo murderer. But it's also been embraced by prominent politicians, including Colorado's Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. If it is that deeply ingrained, is it too late? No, I don't think it's ever too late. But these things do ebb and flow in our country. And, you know, we've we've had periods of time where neo-Nazis have taken, you know, the scene. And recent years, we definitely have seen more racist attacks in the name of white supremacy or alt-right rhetoric. Do you think that's become more mainstream, though? It is. It is becoming mainstream. And that's part of the problem for young people, too, is because their critical thinking is still developing. They're not sure where to get correct information. And so you'll hear about disinformation, misinformation, and uh when those kinds of things come from people in power, like politicians, uh, a vulnerable young person might be more likely to believe that this is the case. And then that becomes fuel on the fire for someone who's already angry, has a sense of a personal grievance, and then latches on to a hate ideology. How do you work against the mainstreaming of these beliefs? There are efforts to come up with counter-messaging. And um, again, those are evident in in parts of the country, little projects. But, um, you know, this is the tricky thing in the U.S. is that that can't really be and probably shouldn't be federally regulated, right? I Mm. mean, we need freedom of speech. But uh, sometimes I say my right to swing my arm uh, ends when it connects with your face. I am not allowed in the U.S. to hurt people based on my beliefs. So if we just drew the line between, you know, you can believe whatever you want, but you can't hurt other people. I think violence prevention ends up being what brings us together. It's interesting, though, because I can imagine someone saying I was just expressing an opinion. 
and not being able to trace for themselves the line between that and what becomes a supermarket shooting, for instance. Yes. And many people will espouse hate beliefs and not violently attack another individual. Hmm. But when that voice becomes more of a mainstream opinion, then you can have people who are vulnerable to this pathway to violence um, who are just more emboldened because it is more familiar and common. A few years ago, law enforcement intercepted an attack on a synagogue in Pueblo. What can you tell us about how often things are thwarted, you know, whether it's a large scale plan or something smaller? This is really where uh, Colorado exceeds. So ever since the Columbine massacre in 99, uh, with the creation of things like Safe to Tell, with collaboration between mental health and law enforcement for people in crisis, um, we are very quick at thwarting attacks when there's evidence of a plan, um, a target, weapons, but those are all right on that edge of attack. And sometimes that's just within days of something happening, sometimes within hours. I mean, and we certainly have plenty of examples of things that haven't been thwarted. So I think what you're speaking to is how close a call this is. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, we have you know thousands of calls that go through safe to tell in a given year. Um, and you don't hear about all of the suicides and guns on campus and attacks that were thwarted because it's their private business. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Psychologist Rachel Nielsen. She works with Nicoletti Flater Associates in Lakewood on public safety, crisis intervention, trauma recovery, and violence prevention. We'll be right back with findings from a Republican district attorney that debunk claims of election fraud in Mesa County. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. After more than two pandemic years, people are thrilled to be meeting friends and families in person and often unmasked. But Colorado is seeing another COVID wave expected to land hundreds more Coloradans in the hospital by mid-June. How can you reduce your risk of infection? Are there some venues to avoid? And if your at-home COVID test comes up positive, what do you do? Find lots of tips at CPR.org. News now from the world of election conspiracy theories. The Mesa County District Attorney has investigated and disproven claims that the county's election hard drives contained evidence of possible fraud. CPR's Benta Berkland is following this story. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And let's start a ways back with how copies of these hard drives got into the hands of election conspiracy theorists. Yes. So around this time last year, the clerk and recorder in Mesa County, Tina Peters, let an unauthorized person enter a secure area in the elections office. That individual took images of the hard drives and passwords of the county's voting equipment. 
the information from those Mesa County voting machines was eventually leaked publicly, and apparently the copies of those drives made it into the hands of individuals who want to use them to prove that there was massive voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Which has not been substantiated. Tina Peters, as you've reported, faces criminal charges related to this whole incident. Uh, But let's stick with what happened to those copied drives. What are these folks, I mean, do we even know who they are, uh, claiming they found on the drives? The people who've been examining the drives are generally involved in the world of pro-Trump election uh, conspiracy theories. They're associated with Mike Lindell. He's the CEO of MyPillow, and he has bankrolled a lot of this. So far, they've put out three reports based on this data from Mesa County. The first report alleges that Dominion Voting Systems, the company that makes the voting machines, erased a whole bunch of what are called log files during their annual software update. The log files themselves don't show that anything fraudulent happened, but the people backing Peters, her her claim, they claim that the log files are official election records and have to be preserved under the law. Mm. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold has argued that they are not official records, and it's okay if the log files are overwritten during the software update. Even so, clerks do have an opportunity to back up those log files ahead of the update if they want to. Okay, so three reports here. That's the first one, and it's rebuttal. What about the second report? What did it focus on? Yes, the second report alleges that the voting machines have dozens of wireless devices that can be connected to the Internet and accessed by, quote, any computer in the world. It alleges that the machines could be tampered with or the votes could be switched off-site remotely. Election officials in Colorado who are very familiar with these machines said the wireless devices were disabled and not connected to the Internet. Neither of these reports, these first two reports, prove or provide evidence of votes being changed in Mesa County in 2020. Okay, and that brings us to the third report. That's the one whose claims the district attorney in Mesa County investigated. Why that one? So this is the only report that alleges criminal wrongdoing which is why the district attorney in Mesa County, Dan Rubenstein, said he felt a duty to look into it. So this report uh, found that during two recent elections, the, the presidential election in November 2020, and then a municipal election in Grand Junction in the spring of 2021, during those, something happened during the vote counting process to create a new database of votes. The authors of the report alleged that the process of creating that database could have hidden fraudulent activity, like switching votes from one candidate to another. And they claimed that this had to happen either through some malicious program that was built into the machines or by someone remotely. And the authors reached that conclusion because they said they talked to the staff in the Mesa County Elections Office. They claimed that no one there did anything to create these alternate databases. So the district attorney in Mesa County looks into this. He's a Republican, I'll mention. And what does he find about the accusations in the third report? He found that the report's conclusion was false. He said In his investigation, he uncovered no evidence that would show any outside interference with the election. The vote counts in both elections were not incomplete. They weren't improper. And he says the evidence shows that anomalies during both of those elections were due to human error. And what does he base that on? So the Mesa County District Attorney's Office, they examined the security video footage of exactly the time when the alternate database 
when they were created in each election. Each time they saw the same thing, an election manager trying to troubleshoot a problem with the machines in a way that created this database, possibly without her realizing it, instead of calling the Dominion Voting Machine Company for help to troubleshoot. That employee in Mesa County was later fired, not for this, but because she allegedly helped the clerk, Tina Peters, with the security breach when the hard drives were copied. Oh, uh, to back up for a moment here, Benta, you said that the report authors claimed that they talked to staff at the election office who said, you know, uh, this didn't happen that way. The district attorney's investigators talked to around a dozen election staff in Mesa County, and they said none of the people they talked to said they ever talked to the authors of this report. Oh. And the investigator reached out to one author on the report, a former computer science professor. He said it was the other author, a software consultant who did the interviews with staff. Well, that man declined to talk to the district attorney. He referred questions to a lawyer for Tina Peters. And the clerk, Tina Peters, she refused to talk to investigators. And so did the election official who did the improper troubleshooting. What strikes me is that We know that there are election conspiracy theories circulating around voting equipment in particular. Uh, But, you know, this is an example of an official really looking deeply into these claims and debunking them, you know. I think that's right. You know, Colorado, you know, this isn't the only evidence we have out there that the votes are being counted accurately, though. Colorado has an audit after each election. Counties check to see if the machine tallies match up with the paper ballot record. That's easy to do since Colorado is an all paper ballot voting state. Mm-hmm. Those audits in 2020 did not show any problem with the vote tallies. Also, some counties have done hand counts as well, which also match the machine results. So Colorado does have guardrails built into the system to ensure the machines are counting properly. Before we go, it's important to mention that Tina Peters, the clerk at the heart of all of this, is running for secretary of state. But she does face primary opponents on the Republican side. Where does that race stand? Peters is in a three-way primary race. Like, like you mentioned, for Secretary of State, she's facing political newcomer Mike O'Donnell. Uh, he's also made false claims that the Dominion voting machines were manipulated in 2020 in Colorado and Georgia. The third candidate, the third candidate is Pamela Anderson. She was the head of the Colorado County Clerks Association. She's a former clerk and recorder in Jefferson County. Anderson was instrumental in helping Colorado move to all-male voting. She's been very vocal that the 2020 presidential election was not stolen and that Coloradans can trust the election system. The primary is June 28th to see which candidate will challenge Democrat Jenna Griswold this fall. The incumbent. Thank you so much, Benta. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland with the latest on the voting machine saga in Mesa County. When we come back, a new bloom on the story of the roses found at Amachi. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. 
and her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. We have an update of a floral nature. This update comes sooner than we expected, and it's not where we expected. It's about the rosebush at Camp Amachi in southeastern Colorado, where the U.S. government incarcerated more than 10,000 Japanese Americans during World War II. An archaeologist discovered the bramble among the ruins 10 years ago and had never seen it bloom. Until this past Saturday, that is. Oh, my God. Is there a bloom? (laughs) Yeah. That's what a little rain will do for you. In a video, University of Denver archaeologist Bonnie Clark is overjoyed at the sight of a lone bud. Mike Reynolds of the Park Service chimes in about the recent moisture. He was there because this year, Amachi, officially known as the Grenada Relocation Center, became a national historic site. They'd all just taken part in an annual pilgrimage to Amachi with survivors and descendants. We literally drove from the cemetery at the end of the ceremony up the road to the Amachi Roses. We looked down and somebody said, is that a bud? (laughs) And there is a little teeny tiny, lovely, delicate pink bud for the first time anyone in 80 years that we know of has seen it. And so the color had been a mystery. As you heard, the bud is pink, and the inside might still hold surprises. But Clark says this gives horticulturists more information to work with. That will help us get an idea maybe of the species of the rose. And knowing the species of the rose will help us know where it came from. Is it the kind of rose that somebody could have bought at a nursery? Is it the kind of rose that somebody brought seeds with them from California? Most Amachians came from the West Coast when President Franklin Roosevelt issued Order 9066. Also a question of which family might have planted it. So we've got some botanical research to do. We've got some historical and genealogical research to do to reach out to some of the families of people who lived in the nearby barracks and see if anyone has any sense of that as well. The Denver Botanic Gardens will likely help in that research. Last fall, they sent a team to Amachi to gather clippings, and it's a surprise the first bud appeared on the original plant on the hard scrabble eastern plains. The gardens thought one of their cuttings might be the first to bloom, being babied in a Denver greenhouse. If you believe in miracles, this is a miracle. That is Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker, an Amachi survivor. She was three when her family was forced to relocate from California to Grenada, Colorado. And thanks to the Botanic Gardens, she has some of the clippings herself, which she is babying in her backyard in Fresno. You know, I've been running out every day looking at my two plants, which are thriving, I'm happy to say. And nothing is even forming in the shape of a bud. And so when Bonnie sent me this picture yesterday, she said, this is a rose update. And I said, do I see something pink? Is that a bud? And she said, yeah, it's a bloom. I said, oh, my God, it's incredible. Tanagoshi Tinker is deeply moved by the bud's timing. It indeed comes the same year Amachi joined the National Park Service, during Asian American Heritage Month. 
And again, spotted on the very day of the annual Amachi pilgrimage. These witness roses are saying, welcome home, pilgrims. So this year captures a whole bit of history. Again, archaeologist Bonnie Clark. The resilience of this place and the spirit of the place and that it happened on the day of the pilgrimage, it was amazing. And what was also, I think, really important is in all these years that I've been checking the rose, I think that one of the reasons it wasn't budding was because it wasn't being cared for. And what happened in the fall when the folks from the Botanic Gardens came and pruned that rose, that helped the living part, the heart of that rose, be more healthy. And some of the clippings will be planted at the gardens in Denver this summer in the Step Garden. There are photos of the Amachi rosebud at CPR.org. Ten years ago this June, the U.S. government created a new program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. It gave kids brought to the U.S. from other countries temporary protection from deportation, and it made them eligible for college and jobs. Ahead of the anniversary, we're sharing monologues written by DACA recipients. They're part of a podcast series from Boulder-based Modus Theater. Today, the story of Chiara Chavez... She recalls flying to her native Mexico to see her grandmother, who was sick. She hadn't crossed the border since she was four. Chavez wrote the monologue, Returning to Myself, in 2018, read here by activist Gloria Steinem. The longest plane ride of my life was for my trip to Mexico when I was 19, so about two years ago now. I don't remember packing. I don't remember the drive to the airport. I don't even remember much about all the forms I had to fill out or how much my family had to pay to apply for advanced parole, the program to allow DACA recipients to leave the country for study abroad, employment, or, as in my case, a humanitarian reason. My grandma was having surgery, and she needed someone who could care for her as she recovered. I don't even remember much about the conversations with my worried parents about the dangers of me traveling. You see, although advanced parole granted me permission from the U.S. government to lawfully leave the country, it didn't actually guarantee I would be let back in. But, spoiler alert, I made it back. What I remember most is being on the plane because I'll never forget how my heart beat faster the closer we got to taking off. The plane was going to Puerto Vallarta, and I'm actually from Colima, but they don't have a direct flight from Denver, and this is one of the closest airports. So you can imagine I was surrounded by American tourists ready for vacation. Meanwhile, I sat there just about vibrating from nervousness or excitement. I'm not sure which. Either way, I just wanted to vomit. (laughs) But luckily for the tourists on that flight, the knot growing in my throat kept holding it down. 
Other people on the plane were chatting, making last-minute calls, getting out their reading material, and I was having a complete nervous breakdown. My hands sweating, my breathing fast, my whole body shaking. When I finally heard the pilot say we were heading out and the plane began to move, my mind started racing. I couldn't stop thinking about what my life had consisted of the past 15 years since I crossed the border at age four and left my first home. All the nights as a child, crying in my parents' arms, asking, why can't I go back and see my family? Why, Mama, why? All the calls to my grandma and the long kisses I would send them over the phone, hoping those kisses could somehow reach them all the way from Denver to Colima. All of the pictures of the beaches, my grandparents, the aunts and uncles who I once knew so well, now getting older, photograph by photograph, having an entirely different life without me. As a child, I didn't understand why I couldn't go to Mexico, and still I trusted that it was something I simply couldn't do. But now somehow, at age 19, I was returning, and my heart was just about to burst. I remember when the plane finally sped across the runway and lifted off into the air. I began crying with abandon as if I was totally alone, just me launching into flight somehow through both space and time. In my head, I kept hearing my grandma's voices, the way they used to soothe me over the phone when I was little. Mia, please don't cry. God willing, we will hold one another soon. Please don't cry anymore. Those phone calls were so painful because I could hear them, but I couldn't touch them. I couldn't hold them. I couldn't smell their hair. My older sister could go to Mexico. She is an American citizen who was born in the U.S. when my father was working in California. Every few years during our childhood, she would get on a plane to Mexico and return with sweets from my aunt's candy store and a collection of photos of her smiling next to my grandparents, aunts and uncles, and the cousins who I'd never met. But I simply could not return. That was the rule because I was born in Mexico. My sister could enroll in the best private schools in Denver and attend on scholarship. I was smart too and tested in as well, but I couldn't go because as an undocumented person, I wasn't eligible for financial aid and there was no way my parents could afford the tuition. My fellow classmates at the high school could fly to Europe and study the art I loved and strived to imitate with my own brush, but I couldn't join them to see the frescoes and the ancient columns myself because another DACA student had tried and they did not let her back into the country. Instead, she and her whole family were deported. I had spent my whole life reconciling myself to the solidity of barriers between me and my dreams and the invisible borders between me and what I loved. But now suddenly I was flying over 500 miles an hour straight through the biggest and most painful barrier of them all between me and my family. I just kept thinking, is this real life? It can't be. 
Can I actually believe this is true when so many of my dreams have been thwarted at the last minute? Is it really true that I'll be landing in Mexico and seeing my family? It can't be. But now for the first time on that plane, I could see it was actually coming true. And I was sobbing again like my four-year-old self, picturing my grandmas thinking, I am making it to their arms and they are still alive. We are alive. Midway through the flight, still shaking, I began to become aware again that there were others still on the plane. I managed to wipe my tears and smile, finally excited. I laughed at myself thinking, wow, they must think I'm crazy or that I'm really scared of flying. But how could they ever understand the magnitude of this moment in my life? I'm fulfilling the American immigrant's dream, my dream. I'm seeing my family after 15 years. And I wanted to yell it across the aisles and tell the whole plane what a triumphant day they were a part of. It's real, it's real. I'm returning to see my family, to meet my family, the lineage of people whose love and existence have filled my veins with blood and my belly with culture. I'm going to step my feet on the dirt I was molded from and breathe the humid air my lungs were meant to breathe. I'm fulfilling the prophecy my mom commenced when she threw my umbilical cord on top of the house that my father and my grandfather built because she believed it would one day bring me back home. I, Kiera Jocelyn Chavez Garcia, am returning home. I am returning to myself. On that long ride back to Colima, for those hours of anticipation, my dreams were finally in my own hands, and I could touch them, feel them, smell them. The years of pain and rejection hardly mattered as I approached the millions of kisses I had sent that way. Gloria Steinem read Returning Home by DACA recipient Chiara Chavez. The 10th anniversary of DACA is June 15th. That monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. The readings are compiled in a podcast, which we'll link to at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. Each reading in the podcast is followed by music. For Chavez's story, Gloria Steinem chose Returning by Jennifer Berezon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In Colorado's 6,000 miles of streams, the rainbow trout gets the glory, but the cutthroat trout is the true local. Rainbows were introduced to the Gunnison River in the late 19th century, but the cutthroats, marked with a crimson slash under their jaws, were already here, descendants of Pacific salmon that ventured further and further inland more than three million years ago. The ones that got the furthest evolved into the greenback cutthroat trout. 
Believed extinct by 1937, small populations were later discovered, and the greenback cutthroat trout officially became the state fish in 1994. But in a case of mistaken identity, genetic testing found those fish were not true greenback cutthroats. A small number of the real thing, however, were found in a stream on the southern slope of Pikes Peak, stocked by an innkeeper more than a century earlier. Anglers will find them there today, and in hatcheries around the state, making a comeback. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A company here is working to improve carbon capture. Climate and environment reporter Miguel Otavarla has the story. What happens at this ethanol plant in Yuma, Colorado, stays in Colorado. Trucks bring the corn into the silos, which is then refined into ethanol that's sent over to Denver. The leftover feed is eaten by cattle here in northeastern Colorado. Normally, that releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But the plant says that by 2024, it wants to be capturing the planet warming gas and pumping it almost a mile underground. Brent Lewis is the CEO of Carbon America, the company building the equipment here and at another plant in nearby Sterling. I think it's going to be a huge win, not just for um, Sterling and Yuma Ethanol or Carbon America, but really for the sector, so that we're able to show this can get done. If all goes according to plan, Lewis expects to be storing 350,000 tons of CO2 from the plants each year. That's like removing 70,000 cars off the road. Still, it's just a fraction of what the carbon capture industry needs to do to help slow global warming. Matt Fry is a senior policy manager at the Great Plains Institute, and he believes carbon capture is a critical tool to cut back on emissions. Yeah, if you look at the science, we're going to have to capture and store, you know, millions of tons of CO2 and for many years just to account for those industrial processes that we're going to have to utilize. That includes gas power plants, cement plants, oil refineries, all of which can be found in Colorado, and all of which emit vast amounts of greenhouse gases. Colorado also has underground conditions that are perfect for storing carbon dioxide. So says Anna Littlefield, a doctoral student at the Colorado School of Mines who has worked for Carbon America in the past. We do have multiple emitters positioned all along the front range that are adjacent to or sitting just on top of ideal subsurface conditions in these deep sedimentary basins. So as far as geologic suitability, Colorado really is ideal. Carbon America may be the first company to begin storing carbon at a commercial scale here, but Colorado officials are already working on new policies that would make it easier to get similar projects off the ground. And in order to start receiving tax credits from the IRS in California, Carbon America needs to go through a rigorous permitting process to show the carbon is going underground and staying there. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. After two years of pandemic shutdowns, the Grammy-winning bluegrass band The Infamous String Dusters are, well, dusting off their strings. The five members hit the road with a full tour schedule that brings them to Red Rocks on Thursday. Earlier this year, they released a new album, Toward the Fray. Free. 
I spoke with two founding members of the infamous String Dusters in 2019, dobro player Andy Hall and banjo player Chris Pandolfi. We talked about relocating to the Rockies from Nashville. Hall told me Colorado had helped shape the band early on as they played small gigs at coffee shops and house parties. And it is where we really found that, like, the fans like to, like, dance, like, mm. stand up and dance. We were kind of in the in the southeast bluegrass scene. People are sitting and listening, and that's great. But when we came here, we found people, like, dancing and being really emotive. And we just, we, we fell in love with that vibe. Living on this level ground, like flatline hopping all around. The air is thick like black This idea that you came, I guess, to Colorado six or seven years ago from Nashville, is it what you noticed about the music scene? Is it your love of the outdoors? Because you're really involved in the environmental movement, for instance. I mean, I know that you've partnered with groups like American Rivers and Leave No Trace. Yeah, like Andy said, Colorado was really formative in terms of helping us sort of observe the crowd response, see how that informs the music, and then let that evolution really roll. It's just become a mecca for bluegrass music. The outdoors was certainly also a lure. I mean, we, a bunch of us ski, we like to hike. And yeah, so we started partnering with some environmental causes pretty early on. You know, I moved to Lyons first off and within a year went through the floods that happened there and, and saw firsthand, you know, was stranded in Lyons and went through the whole deal of the flood, you know, had to evacuate and it was very scary. And and, and gosh, uh, the festival grounds there were inundated too. Yeah, exactly. To... Planet Bluegrass, which has, uh, you know, been a big help for us. And we played the festivals there a bunch. And so, you know, a lot of that hit home for us. And, and out of that, we, uh, you know, we started partnering with Candade, Oscar Blue is like philanthropic arm and did a song with actually with Bruce Hornsby to benefit the Candade related to the floods. And so we kind of, you know, got into it from a variety of ways. But, you know, it, it all felt very personal moving here and, and seeing that. Let's hear that collaboration with Bruce Hornsby. The track is called Road to Boulder. I got lost on my way home. The path is dim there once had shown like a dog looking for a bone. My head spinning round So I put my nose up to the wind to get a sense of where I've been Looking down that path of sin is always hard to do If I don't take the road to Charlottesville I'll take the one that's a little colder where the air I'm joined by two members of the bluegrass group, the infamous String Dusters. What's a string duster? The name comes from Ben Eldridge, the banjo player for the legendary Seldom Scene. And um, we were 
consulting with him early on and he threw the name out and it was so hard to find a name. I, we had this list that still exists somewhere on paper and everything was taken. We fished around and at Ben's recommendation, we were the string dusters. And then when we found out that that name was taken, we became the infamous string dusters. Oh, there's a string dusters. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah. Somewhere out there. Have you, you've never run across them? We never have run across them. No, but. Uh, it's going to be an ugly fight. I know. Well, yeah. You know, hey, <laughs> so the, that's what makes us infamous. The yeah. infamous was added to differentiate yourself. Exactly. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah. What do you think a string duster is? Someone who is a hot picker, someone who can really pick hot and dust those strings. The infamous part you got to earn, though. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that comes later. It's a badge. There is a hallmark of your shows, um, which is really fun and unexpected covers. We had a member of our staff shout out a cover that they just love from the string dusters, well, the infamous ones. Uh, let's listen and see if the audience gets it. Walking on the Moon there by Sting. With five members, do you kind of rotate which covers you're going to do? Yeah, we we really mix it up with the covers and we try and get new things in the mix for every tour. And like you said, it's just a, a fun sort of connection point, especially for people who are less familiar with the band. You know, they say, play something I know so I can tell how good you are, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and we've just got such a wide range of influences, you know, everything from traditional bluegrass to heavy metal and everything in between. So the covers just help us, you know, put some of that on display and more than anything else, just play some of our favorite music and find sort of new and different ways to bluegrassify that stuff. And and it's just a, a fun and different addition to the show. Some of my 2019 conversation with Chris Pandolfi and Andy Hall, co-founders of the infamous String Dusters. The new album from the Colorado Bluegrass Group is called Toward the Fray. They have a busy summer tour schedule planned, including a headlining return to Red Rocks Thursday. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that pulls the strings. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, 
And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.